see how I get all animated about these stupid little things. <laughs> it's amazing how helpful these things really are. Everybody knows Stan. Uh, Stan is somebody who I've been looking up to for, I feel like, decades now. Since I started lifting, he was well known in the community of this is a dude who's somehow a bodybuilder, but is able to keep up with the power lifters. You know, I think you were like the first person to be a lean power lifter. And it kind of motivated a lot of us because I had buddies who were both bodybuilders and power lifters. And when I got into CrossFit, I was big into the power lifting just to kind of get strong. And you were the guy that everybody kind of talked about as being, I don't know, the gold standard of you don't have to get fat to get strong, you know? So it's awesome to have you on, man. Thank you, brother. Yeah. So, I, and I kind of wanted to dive into today some of your background because I don't, I mean, I've, you know, I've listened to like every podcast you, you do and I've looked up your background and, uh, you know, I know you're also kind of known as like this um, kind of authoritative figure in almost the science of bodybuilding and powerlifting and stuff. And um, so I kind of wanted to see like, where's your background as far as school and, and what got you started? And I know you had a pretty cool one similar to me. I was very scrawny when I was little. And I think you were too, right? That's how all of this was born. I was the, the skinny kid in, uh, in high school, wrestled 98 pounds, 106 as a junior, 115 as a senior. And I was uh, 135 pounds as a freshman in college. And my soccer coach told me to, to go lift weights. And so um, I went and lifted weights and I loved it so much. I told him I wasn't coming back. I wanted to be a pro bodybuilder. That's awesome. <laughs> Six foot 140. And I wanted to be an IFBB pro bodybuilder. I'd picked up a magazine and that was my dream. And I, I pursued that full force. I started studying exercise science at the University of Oregon and uh, started competing. I mean, even after two years of training, I, I was 158 in my first bodybuilding show uh, in the novice lightweight class. And uh, it was just a long, long road. And I learned a lot of things along the way, obviously, you know, pursuing the inf all the information I could. Back then, I would sit up in the science library till midnight till they closed to kick me out, scrolling through microfiche. And I know most of our audience won't know what that is, but if you recall eight track tape players that your grandpa used to talk about, uh, that's, it, it was akin to that. And we just didn't have the internet back then, didn't have access to the resources we have now. And I, uh, <clears throat> you know, I, I got my information from the guy behind the counter at Gold's Gym, and that was usually pretty poor information. And he was eating tuna fish and rice cakes because he was prepping for a bodybuilding show. And so I read Arnold Schwarzenegger's Encyclopedia of Bodybuilding, started eating tuna fish and rice cakes and couldn't figure out why I wasn't gaining weight because I was training two hours a day, seven days a week. And, uh, you know, just had a personal experience. I made every mistake at least twice. I always say if I knew then what I know now, I would have saved myself a lot of trouble along the way. Uh, and uh, I started to realize some success once I flipped the script and started eating more and training less. And, um, and then, you know, I learned a lot of things of course, from bulking up, I thought that the heavier weight I lifted, <clears throat> the bigger I would get. I didn't really even learn that lesson until it, to its entirety until 2008 when I started training with Flex Wheeler, that uh, just being stronger didn't necessarily mean you would be bigger. Uh, mm -hmm. So I, I lifted super heavy all through my earlier ages and, and uh, you know, of course, suffered from lots of tendonitis and uh, you know, little injuries here and there, strains and pulls and what have you. Fortunately, nothing major. And then um, just, you know, just from competing over the years, uh, bulking up to over 300 pounds uh, as far back as 1993. I think the first time I weighed in at over 300 pounds, uh, wow. 1994. And then dieting down to single digit body fat 
and learning all of the lessons that I now try and instruct my clients on both ends of the spectrum, whether it be weight gain or weight loss, whether it be for competitive reasons or just for health. Uh, and a lot of that I learned from, you know, obviously collaborating with a lot of great minds and, um, and getting you know, well over 100 blood tests throughout the year. And so I use all yeah. of this information now to, to try and help my clients navigate, along with plenty of resources. I'm, I'm quick to say I'm not a guru. I didn't invent any of this stuff. I, I just hope to help guide them and direct them. Uh, you know, now we've got, of course, access to so many incredible professionals, MDs and PhDs who also lift competitively. Uh, and I've just learned a ton from, uh, you know, just from following a lot of the great minds recently that are uh, available over social media and, and, uh, and online. Yeah, that's awesome, man. Um, so in the beginning, I think if I did my, my homework correctly, you kind of got into lifting, broke away from the fitness scene, though, and went and started some companies, right? And were pretty successful in the business sphere. I did. You know, I competed for many years and I finally realized uh, I wasn't going to be a pro bodybuilder. And more so, I realized it wasn't a, a career. Uh, back then, you know, in the in the 80s and 90s, it was really hard to make a living. I was a personal trainer. Uh, you know, obviously, I competed and, and thought that someday I could you know, get sponsorships or whatever else. But uh, I just wasn't at that level at the time. And, and I don't think that, uh, you know, the industry at the time was uh, it didn't have the the. Uh, the benefits of social media to reach out to such a broad audience and to be able to, uh, you know, provide goods and services to a larger audience. And so I did, I, you know, I just had to pay the bills. They say back then I used to always joke that, what do you call a bodybuilder without a <clears throat> wife or girlfriend? And the, 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 uh, the tagline was homeless. <laughs> <laughs> true. Very true. <laughs> because all we did was eat, sleep and train, you know, yeah. that's all we had time for. And, uh, and so I did, I, I, I stepped away from competing in 1997 until 2006, almost 10 years. I didn't compete. And during that time, uh, I started building companies and I built a number of successful companies. I've got now I'm working on my sixth multi-million dollar business since, since uh, in the last nearly 20 years. Um, and plenty of failures along the way. I succumbed to the real estate market collapse. I owned hundreds of units of multifamily and uh, single family subdivision and commercial real estate. And uh, I got clipped hard uh, during the real estate collapse and had to rebuild from there. And have since um, put up three more multimillion dollar companies in that, uh, in that 10, 12 years that's transpired since, uh, since the real estate <clears throat> collapse or almost 15 years now since 2008. So that's incredible. yeah, I, I, I've, I've tried. And then I came back of course in 2006 uh, and started competing on a local level and then met Flex Wheeler in 2008 and trained with him. Uh, and in 2009, got my pro card and then uh, met Mark Bell and started training with him and then set world records in uh, 2009, 10, 11, and 12 in powerlifting. So I was going back and forth, of course, bulking up, dieting down, bulking up, dieting down. And so it was, uh, uh, you know, it was, it was a lot. And during that time, I think I <clears throat> traveled to what's now 14 countries in all 50 states have given over 200 seminars just trying to share the information and i you know most of it is is the basics people often say you know that stan always repeats himself and that's because i uh oh technical right, difficulties guys. there we're back we good oh, we're good sorry about all that. right no problem and, uh, <clears throat> are you recording 
We are, but it's okay. I can edit it Good. out. Well, I just, I just kind of wrapped up that stint at which I was, um, you know, I'd stepped away from competing and then back to competing. So it kind of brings us to where we're at today, having been retired for 10 years. Uh, I'm just coaching full time. That's all I do is I work with clients. Most people only see the famous clients that I work with, but I work with a lot more dad bods and soccer moms behind the scenes. Uh, just ordinary folks trying to improve their health, particularly as they age, because now that I'm 55, uh, one of the primary concerns, especially with people who used to compete, is all the damage they've done over the years. And then yeah. just trying to continue to slog along doing a lot of the same old things that we did. And you guys have heard me say that, you know, if you want to be healthy, don't compete. And there's a big difference between fitness and health and the fitness level required to be a, you know, a competitive athlete like a UFC fighter, a, um, you know, world's strongest man is not necessarily healthy. And so a lot of what I do is transition people into a more sensible and reasonable, you know, long-term plan for their general health while still allowing them to maintain some of the, the goals that they want to be strong and to be fit and, and uh, you know, but have the energy to, uh, you know, to maintain their career and their family and all of that. Absolutely. Well, when I think of Stan Efferdine, I feel like everything you get into, you are highly successful at or you succeed at. And like you said, you've had your failures, which every successful person does. But a lot of what we try to harp on over and over and over again is it's not necessarily the supplements or, you know, the having the precise rep range or the drugs, the PEDs. You know, there's something to, I don't know your character and your deep, you know, with inside you, what do you think has made you as successful as you are in pretty much every venture that you are business, real estate, uh, coaching, bodybuilding, powerlifting, what keeps you going? What keeps you, how do you get so successful in everything that you do? Well, I was diagnosed OCD ADHD as a kid. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, my, my brother was on meds. I skipped the meds and I just uh, used my obsessiveness to to dump myself into whatever it is I was doing at the time. Bodybuilding lent itself well to that. In the absence of bodybuilding, I'm not sure I ever would have made it through college because I had such a hard time concentrating on any one thing for any given period of time. But it, it provided such um, you know discipline and consistency and time management and rigor and uh, tracking and and obviously having a a goal to focus on. Uh, so those kinds of things, I, I guess to sum it up, cause I don't think that people necessarily have to, uh, have those issues in order to be successful, but I'm, I'm just very, very consistent. And I would repeat, I was very repetitive. It's one of the things I did as a kid, I had ticks and I would, I would repeat certain behaviors over and over again. Uh, and that's, I kind of applied that in a positive fashion, uh, both with business I've often said if you applied the same level of discipline, consistency, and time management to any income-producing venture uh, as you did to your sport, uh, you'd be highly successful. Um, the difference is that in sport, hard to say this, but it, it's immediate feedback, and it, you know, especially with weightlifting. Every time you go to the gym, you get immediate feedback that what you did over the last 24 to 72 hours impacts the uh, effectiveness of that training program, whether it be how many reps or sets or, or what have you. So I could always make very short-term adjustments and see the results in the training session. And I valued the training sessions more than the outcome. I think some people focus on the, the powerlifting meet or the bodybuilding show, which is usually you know a few months away, if not more, depending on your plan. But I looked at the workouts. I always looked at the workouts as being paramount. And I still do that when I'm training people for competition. I still focus on uh, and I measure 
performance in each workout because it's a great indicator of whether you're you know growing or uh, declining, uh, especially when you're dieting for bodybuilding shows and and even dieting just you know to to lose weight for general health. You don't want to lose strength. Yeah. And so those kinds of things are immediate feedback. How, how much sleep you got in the last 48 hours, whether or not you got your meals or adequate hydration in your stress level. Um, you know, if all of that is in order, you're going to go to the gym and have a phenomenal performance. And, and really it comes down to setting PRs. And, and that's not just for competitors. I've got uh, a kid's power hour that I run with little kids from six, seven years old up to, you know, teenagers every Sunday here at Sin City Iron in Las Vegas. I've got a bunch of little kids running around. It's like chasing chickens, but I still focus on PRs and I teach them all. Yeah. What's a PR and it's a personal record. And what are you going to set a personal record on today? And that's what I focus on more than anything. Obviously having fun and being safe uh, sets a priority, but I, I, I asked them, you know, what's your favorite lift? How much are you going to lift today? Whether it's an extra rep or two and a half more pounds on the side, that's what I focus on. So I kind of bringing that full circle. <laughs> I say what's allowed me to be most successful is that I'm just really, really consistent uh, and I track everything. And, and I've just, I found that it's most effective just written on a piece of paper. I've said that, you know, apps and things in my phone, oftentimes kind of like the junk drawer in the kitchen. Once you close the drawer, you just forget about it. And so I have a yellow pad of paper. I have this little checklist that I print out and I've done this for well over two decades on an Excel spreadsheet. Uh, with the days of the week or month across the top, and then a list of all the things that I want to uh, do repetitively on a daily or weekly basis. And uh, I check that list off and I can glance at it at any time and see the check marks. I can see my morning weight, my hours of sleep, how many 10 minute walks I got in, how many meals I got in, whether or not I was supplementing, whatever was my protocol for the, for the moment, the time being, uh, and maybe my top lifts for the week if that was what I was pursuing. Um, and so I do track things and I keep a little yellow pad of paper around and I carry it with me, whether it's on my nightstand in the morning when I wake up or I take it to the bathroom or I take it to the, uh, you know, to the dining room table or, or wherever, or keep it in my car in the passenger seat next to me. Uh, I, I just make little check marks on the things that are priorities for me. And then as I got into business, I started actually prioritizing those things by um, those that paid me money. Oftentimes people like to check things off their checklist to feel a sense of accomplishment, but going to the grocery store isn't necessarily uh, something that's fruitful in terms of income. And so, you know, a lot of people like to check off those easy little things every day and then they leave the, the big things that actually return money to you. And so I guess I did say that the thing about lifting is uh, that it's immediate feedback. And the thing that's challenging about business is that's not the case, that Hmm. The things that you, the repetitive behaviors that you have to pursue, you have to pursue them for many, many, probably months uh, and certainly years in order to see substantial returns. And so I had to have a longer term outlook and I had to be a little more persistent uh, and forego uh, a lot of the immediate reward. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like kind of even in fitness, your background with powerlifting too, I think helps you with that in bodybuilding because we've talked about before, a lot of people fall off the fitness bandwagon in fitness because it's not immediate feedback for a lot of guys. You know, you start, you go train your biceps, they don't grow an inch. It might take yeah. two years to grow an inch, you know? Um, but you somehow were able to tweak your thing, your way of thinking about it as to, you know, did I get an extra rep that day? Did yes. I add a fractional plate? And so you did have that. So you had those mini victories and we've talked about this before on the podcast, those mini victories add up after a while.
while to a big victory. Um, but that's a cool way to kind of switch your mind. I'm sure you could even figure out ways to do that in business. You know, did I make this call today? And that's a mini victory. So that is a little bit of immediate feedback. That's pretty cool that you kind of merge the two of those. Yeah. Well, and you're absolutely right. There are certain things that you can measure in business that give you immediate feedback. One of which is just reaching out to contacts, you know, whether or not you're producing content for social media or you're you're generating a lead list to send out emails. Um, I recently uh, personally texted well over 2000 people on my uh, contact list. I would, you know, hours a day, I would sit there, whether I was on an airplane or, you know, whatever I was doing, I was sitting there writing personal notes to each of my uh, customers that have, have been with me for many years, uh, you know, using their name rather than, you know, I had the option of, of pouring all their numbers into a, uh, a text blast system, uh, but I wanted them to have my obviously personal cell phone number. I wanted to use their name. I wanted to say something personal about our relationship, if in fact uh, it was somebody I knew or had bumped into in the past. Uh, and so I, I wrote, you know, over 2000 individual texts to, to people and, and uh, the, the rewards were substantial. Some people were like, oh my God, I can't believe that, you know, <laughs> the rhino. It, it's, it's always kind of laughable to me that people hold me in such high regard because I'm, you know, I'm just a blue collar guy at heart. And, uh, you know, I hustle and uh, I don't consider myself to be uh, above or beyond. And, and by this, by that token, uh, I'm grateful. I, my response is often, hey, you're paying my bills, brother. And I'm, <laughs> you know, I'm here for you, whatever you need. If somebody's buying a product or service from me, then I'm available, you know, it's, it, anytime I have my phone in my hand, I'm going to answer uh, and, you know, and thank them and, and hopefully help them. I've answered, I'm going to say well over 100,000 DMs in the last few years. I get wow. 50, 60, 70 a day. And you ask anybody that's ever sent me a DM and, and I've responded to 95% of them and not just a thumbs up. I'll, I'll give them an answer to their question and I'll attach a link to an article or a video that is, uh, that I have in my library that's relevant to, to what it is they're, they're interested in. And I've done tons of obviously podcasts and, and um, seminars that are on YouTube for free. And, you know, people are always wondering, you know, how do you make money from that? And, uh, you know, the goal initially wasn't to make money. The goal was to, to provide people great information. And then, uh, you know, they, they will come obviously and, and patronize my goods and services if they feel as though I've provided good information. And so, you know, a lot of what's in my ebook is I've already pub or I've already put out for free on, on all these different uh, uh, social media platforms, but it just helps, I think, condense it and organize it and provide a reference to it for people. Uh, and so I've been very fortunate to have, have sold uh, a lot of information in addition to what I've given away. Yeah, that's awesome. Maybe we'll pivot towards your ebook. So I'm guessing you're talking about the vertical diet, right? Yeah, the vertical diet 1.0 came out some six years ago when I first did that seminar with Hofthor Bjornsson in Iceland. And it's since evolved into the vertical diet 2.0 and 3.0. Uh, and I provide updated copies and information for free to anybody who bought a previous version. Oh, now it's a username and password access. So I can update it real time with any information that I think is important. And the updates are really based on, you know, any, anything I've learned since or the science has evolved or clients have asked me questions that weren't in the book. And so I added that, that information or that chapter and those references, things like a high blood pressure quick fix kit and a high blood sugar quick fix kit and high cholesterol quick fix kit. Obviously, the blood testing portion has expanded with, you know, links to 
Merrick Health and, and all the things that they're providing. And, uh, and, I, and there's a lot of references and resources, over 200 uh, to other um, professionals in the industry. Somebody asks me a particular question and I find that somebody in the industry is, uh, you know, uh, certainly academically qualified or a professional that's well regarded by their peers. I point them in that direction. I say, here's what this person says and here's their article on it. And I've attended, you know, dozens and dozens of seminars uh, over the years, um, you know, just to, to learn from these people. I don't, I don't, again, I'm not a guru. I didn't invent this stuff. I don't think I'm an authority on all things. I'm really just trying and collate all this information because I have the time and it's my business to do so. And then organize it and give it to my clients in such a way that, that, uh, that they can utilize it because they don't have the time and it isn't their career. And, and, and it's hard to sometimes to navigate through all of the, the information on the internet and see what's, you know, what works and what doesn't. Yeah. <clears throat> when it comes to the vertical diet, when, was that something that you just started doing on your own um, through personal experience or was it partly due to what flex taught you? What was the impetus of the, or the genesis of the vertical diet? So it's pretty unique. I mean, it's similar to a bodybuilding diet, but there's definitely unique parts in there. So you yeah, know, how did that come about? It's grown over the years, obviously with the blood testing and the sleep and hydration and all the optimization and, and those kinds of things. But uh, initially it was because I was getting all those same questions and I was having to explain all of that to each individual that I was working with. And so I figured if I compiled it all together and then I could provide it to them in one document and I wouldn't have to keep repeating myself. Having said that, as you're well aware, uh, that everybody has some unique uh, circumstance, whether it's their goal or their personal health. Um, and you do have to do a significant amount of customization for individuals. Yeah. There, there's no cookie cutter program that fits all. But I, I try and show them that there's many paths to the same destination and provides the options and, and give them the, the, um, uh, you know, the pros and cons of each option. Um, you know, more so than anything, just to prevent from nociboing somebody into thinking there's only one way to do it, one right way, one best way. And I, I want them to have, you know, options to just in case they haven't tried something that might work best for them. Because we see in the research, there's a lot of inter-individual variability and we have to try and cater to our client. Hopefully we can ask enough questions in which we can guide them to the, the path that would, that would best suit them without too much experimentation and you know, wasting their time. For sure. Uh, but that's, you know, that's the, was the purpose of it. It's, it's grown now into so much information that, that um, I'm finding not everybody reads all of it, unfortunately. <laughs> and they ask me questions that are in the book. And I, I don't mind that, especially if it's a client of mine. You know, I'm, I'll just help uh, guide them because uh, at the end of the day, and you know this as a, as a trainer and a coach, uh, folks, they, they want you to tell them exactly what to do. That, that's what they think they're paying you for. You know, Stan, just tell me exactly what to do. Sometimes it can be frustrating. I'll just use a chiropractor as an, as an example. When you go in and you've got a certain, uh, you know, injury or pain and they start teaching you, you know, a 30 minute anatomy and physiology course. <laughs> and, and, and there's some of the chiropractors and, and physical therapists have some of the best anatomy knowledge in the industry. It's a, the, the, the academics required to, to accomplish that that license is, it has a lot of that in it. And, uh, but that's what I find. And, I, and sometimes, you know, I, I just give somebody too much information and you overwhelm them. I, and I do that in my seminars and my friends tell me that I water the lawn with a fire hose. And, 
the hard part is, is anytime your audience gets to be more than one, and particularly if it's 20 or 30 or 50, there's such a variety of needs and, and goals and personal circumstances that it, you can't be specific and you have to be incredibly general and, or at least show a bunch of different views to people. It's so hard to speak to large groups. When you get an individual one-on-one, you can really quickly narrow down, uh, you know, they can tell you what their needs are and you can tell them, you know, ask them enough questions to where you can design a specific program. But at the end of the day, uh, that's what they tell me. And I, and I think that, you know, like with training programs, I, everything works, nothing works forever. But they're, like, they're like, Stan, just tell me exactly what to do. They want to know exactly the exercise, exactly the sets, exactly the reps, exactly the rest periods. What they, and we all do it. We Google what's the best this or the best that. You know, that's, you know, that's, that's, that's human nature. And that's, uh, you know, I have to understand that and give people a specific program. The challenge there is, is that then they think if they deviate from that program, something, how they've done something wrong and somebody will hit me up and say, Stan, I just chewed a piece of gum. Is that okay? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I wonder sometimes if maybe I've, I've uh, if I haven't been effective in, 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 uh, in getting them the information, if, if they're so concerned about uh, deviating from the program. So I, I try and cover the big rocks first yeah. tell them, let's go back to step one. Um, I know that's a lot of information, but I, I just, it, it, it's the problem with doing, with dealing with, uh, clients is it's not a problem necessarily, but is that there's so much variability into what their specific needs are. Yeah. When it comes to the vertical diet, the way that we look at it kind of, I mean, we, we give it to merit clients, pretty much everybody who comes through, we recommend read the vertical diet, mainly to focus on the micronutrients, which I would say is probably the best selling point. Would you agree when it comes to your diet? Yeah, I'd agree. There are certain foods that just have more bioavailable uh, micronutrients in them. And it's really important to build that foundation. Obviously, calories are king, and I think second to that in terms of macros, protein would probably be a priority. And uh, but I, I don't. It's hard to have these conversations as to what's more important because I. That's the same with I say with sleep and exercise and and, and stress management is, it, you, you kind of got to do it all. The whole is greater than the sum of its parts. And if you have a you know, uh, like a gaping hole in your in your game plan, you know I've said. If you're religiously taking your your thimble-sized five-gram scooper of creatine every day and sleeping five hours a night, you're a fucking idiot, you know? <laughs> and that's not to say that creatine doesn't work. It's just to say that, that you know, you, you have to focus on the big rocks and that, and that uh, you know, it's really important when you start putting together, consistently putting together a good night's sleep, regular exercise, and... Uh, a quote unquote healthy diet. And I know that <laughs> that conjures up yeah. a whole range of thoughts depending on who you're asking about. But uh, uh, when you put it all together, um, that's a neat thing about when somebody comes to you and, and to start a program is generally when somebody reaches out for help, they're not doing anything right. It, it's not that they're just having a little bit of trouble with one portion of their program. They're, they're probably doing nothing at that point. They've given up and thrown their hands in the air. And so when you just get them back on track, you see extraordinary results. They just feel amazing in the first 30 days. What we've seen in, in the hormone replacement therapy arena, and I've worked with a lot of uh, doctors over the years for, for decades now, since I was diagnosed hypogonadal when I was 20 years old. 
uh, lots of specialists, endocrinologists, uh, hormone replacement therapy doctors, um, some better than others, even people who own, you know, large uh, HRT practices, uh, you know, 10, 12 clinics over numerous states. What we find is, is the biggest problem is they come in and they get testosterone therapy, but they also improve everything else. They improve their sleep, they improve their diet, they start exercising. And then that discipline wanes over time, which is, mm -hmm. you know, the, the part of the problem to begin with. And within 45, 60, certainly by day 90, they've stopped doing all the other things, but they're continuing to take the testosterone and they're like, well, this isn't working for me anymore. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Like, when you brought up, uh, when you said the creatine thing, I was going to say, I, I see that exact same things. We talk very candidly about our use of PEDs and same thing. You can load yourself up with trend and anadrol and every strong compound under the sun, but if the sleep and the nutrition and the training isn't dialed in, I mean, you fill a guy up with trend and put him on the couch. It's not going to make muscle, you know, you know, there's yeah. a, a testosterone study where they put on, you know, a few extra pounds of lean mass. It's not going to make you, you know, be your favorite influencer if you're sitting around not doing everything else that they're doing. Right. And, and those kind of, uh, gains aren't a perpetuity that that's a very right. short-term yep. study. You wouldn't see yep. that long-term, but, yep. uh, but you're right. And it wouldn't, it, we aren't even talking about trend and, and anadrol. We're talking about, <laughs> you know, we're talking about 120 milligrams of testosterone a week to get you normalized because you're hypogonadal. Yep. Uh, you're going to feel really good over a very short period of time. But then if you stop doing the regular exercise or the sleeping, uh, because a lot of that occurs, as you know, and I don't want to get too deep into the pharmacology, the whole thing, but a lot of that occurs kind of what we see because of erectile dysfunction. And that's really a canary in the coal mine for insulin resistance. And if you aren't losing weight and regularly exercising, then you may get a short-term benefit from, uh, you know, hormone replacement therapy, uh, even something like metformin that, you know, that specifically addresses insulin resistance, but uh, it'll continue to get worse and worse. And you're just kicking the can down the road if you aren't actually yep. trying to remedy the, the causes of the insulin resistance. And so people will often claim two, three months later or six months later, it stopped working. And that's really right. not the case. Your, uh, the underlying problem has just has gotten so much worse that now the medical intervention isn't, isn't fixing the problem. And so uh, that's what I see more often than not. And so I, I really do focus a lot on, um, on the basics like weight, weight loss and of course the blood testing, you know, and I chase those numbers pretty hard. I mean, we, we got to get your HA1C down and your fasted insulin. We've got to get your LDL down. I mean, I really focus on those mainly because they're measurable. Uh, and again, it provides you feedback and, and I might test more frequently than some doctors would recommend just because it gives you a nice, it's almost like taking, um, you know, uh, progress, pictures every week or weighing yourself yeah. daily. Uh, you know, I, I might want to see a blood test 30 days after we initially start. And, and it, it can be motivating if you have a significant improvement in one of those numbers. Absolutely. Certainly, certainly 60 days and no more than 90. Um, it's hard to keep somebody's attention for 90 days, you know, on any program. If there isn't sure. something showing them that there's some getting some positive feedback that, that hey, I'm, I'm making progress. And so uh, th that's the way I make those decisions sometimes is based on the psychology of, of motivation and adherence sure. more so than whether it's medically necessary. And when it comes to TRT too, on your point there, what I find often is when guys come in and they're hypogonadal, 
Um, you know, we talk a lot these days about why are guys so hypogonadal, you know, is it the plastics, whatever. What I find is when they're truly hypogonadal, there's almost always a high fasting insulin. It's almost always a high A1C. And is it the chicken or the egg? I think it's, you know, right. the chicken, the insulin resistance is, I think. And then it snowballs off each other. They play into each other for sure. But I'll always see some amount of inflammation, some insulin resistance. Usually lipids are skewed. And so... You know, I, I joke like uh, when people tell me, oh, all the boxes are checked off. I need TRT. And I go, well, your lab work, you know, it's like that in the Jerry Seinfeld, you know, your your lab work says that's a lie. <laughs> you know, you're not yeah. all checked in, you know, your your insulin's 25 and, and that's not where it should be. Um, so a lot of times, too, and what I like about working with Merrick is that we don't just give the Band-Aid. A lot of times we can correct all the other stuff first and then magically the testosterone's higher and you don't need to use the testosterone, you know, and, and testosterone can be great for people. And what my hope is always, if we start them on it, like you said, they start doing all the other stuff to fix that. But sometimes we can get them to just fix all that stuff first, which auto corrects the testosterone. I mean, we know high insulin levels cause dysregulation at hypothalamus. You know, we get less uh, gonadotropin uh, release. And it can also interfere at the level of the testes. So it's like all around the insulin resistance, like you talked about, plays a major role. Sometimes that's what we should focus on before the TRT. I agree. You know, I said that it was like six years ago in that um, in that Iceland seminar. I, I spoke about if you're a personal trainer and you've been training a client for I don't know 60 days and they haven't lost the weight that they're trying to lose, and and you've you've I don't know if you say you could rule it out, but you, you're relatively certain they've they've adhered to at least you know a sensible diet plan, etc. And I said at some point, if you don't have them get a blood test and try and identify whether or not they've got hypothyroidism, which is extremely common. And again, chicken and the egg, it may, it may be because of the excess weight or the poor sleep or even overtraining in, in many cases or stress. Uh, but if you haven't at least gotten a blood test to try and identify that problem, at some point you're rifting them off. You know, you're just yeah. not providing them the information that's going to allow them to succeed. And I said the same thing about a guy that comes in to try and bodybuild. And this was my experience when I started because I was hypogonadal. I, I had uh, uh, varicocele. And I was diagnosed with that at, at 20. But after, like I said, after like two years of training, I'd put on about 14 pounds. I mean, as a, as a beginner who was bodybuilding every single day, and there were other reasons not eating enough and overtraining certainly contributed to it. But nonetheless, uh, I've said that if, if somebody's not improving their body composition and they're training with you regularly, then at some point you're going to want to get them a blood test because if they're hypogonadal, they're not going to gain muscle and you're just ripping them off. And, yeah. you know, and that's not to say that, that, uh, you know, that everybody should use hormone replacement therapy, as you just mentioned, but at some point they should at least try and find out if that's not a contributing factor and, uh, exactly. and, and try and make the recommendation that they at least go see a professional. And I, I'm cautious to say, I'm not giving medical advice here. That's why I work with the folks from America. I, I, I just I, I just try and find out if that is uh, a factor limiting their progress and then direct them to the professionals that can give them that advice. And uh, Stan, I know you've talked about it in other podcasts as well, but, uh, you know, being diagnosed at such a young age, do you think there was any contributing factors as far as when you were young? I, I know you had said that you were working kind of crazy jobs at that age too, correct? Just lack of sleep. Do you think there's any lifestyle factors that maybe contributed to that? Yeah, well, I had varicocele. Okay. Uh, and so that's a, for those in the audience that don't know, that's when you have a, a vein that doesn't effectively drain. And so it accumulates blood and heat around the testicles. And then of course that impacts your testosterone and 
for some people, it's not, not everybody, but a good percentage of people with varicocele will see that problem. Now, I also talked about the fact that I had uh, delayed onset puberty mm -hmm. in high school, uh, and that was because I was working um, swing shift, and I wouldn't get home till after midnight, and it was at a 7-Eleven, and so I was eating chips and nacho cheese dip and, and so drinking soda pops. So between the lack of sleep, and I was wrestling too, between the lack of sleep and the, the horrible nutrition, uh, I just, I, I, my body wasn't going to gain weight. I, I, so I, it was, uh, I, I didn't have the, uh, we see this with women who suffer from amenorrhea, you know, mm -hmm. from, uh, from the female triad with uh, chronic calorie restriction and anemia and bone mineral density loss and those kinds of things, uh, simply, from, uh, and, uh, simply from losing too much weight um, say with distance runners in high school and college, et cetera. I had a lot of experience working with female athletes in college at the University of Oregon. I saw that quite commonly, but happens to both men and women. These calorie, these uh, severe extended calorie restrictions can have a huge impact on your hormones. And we see this with whether natural uh, athletes, um, you know, dieting down to single digit body fat, um, you're going to have, you know, obviously some, some interference of your hormone production. Uh, which, again, as we discussed, could be remedied by, you know, just changing your, your lifestyle habits, eating a few more calories, getting sufficient sleep, and, uh, you know, maybe not overtraining, which is what I see pretty commonly amongst a lot yeah. of athletes. Yeah, and awesome that you, I know you work with, as you were saying, a lot of younger kids, too, um, and I've heard you speak on it, too, maybe not to be so specific with their athletics, and so honed in on just one area that, you know, maybe a sport that focuses on them being a specific weight at such a young age can certainly have a detriment on their health, you know, going forward. That's such a, that's such a hard conversation for me to have with parents of high school boys wrestling mm -hmm. and high school girls, uh, um, what would you say? Long, uh, cross country. I see it very commonly. And, and even, you know, like I was working with a, uh, a high school softball team last summer in Arizona. And a lot of those girls, it's not even the sport. It might just be their, their diet, you know, the influence of, of, uh, of body composition, what have you. First and foremost, they'll just start skipping meals and then they'll start demonizing different foods, you know, demonize red meat, demonize dairy, demonize, uh, you know, fruit of all things. Uh, and so, you know, I had a couple parents reach out to me and said, Hey, my kid's performance has really suffered lately. They've been really tired. Um, most commonly that's going to be an iron deficiency in a young woman. Mm -hmm. uh, and so sure enough, they get a blood test and they've got anemia. And so, you know, immediately we, we try and talk about obviously calories first and protein, but um, just for anybody that's, that's, that's listening, when you do get a client with anemia, obviously you're going to want to get, you know, get a blood test and get a doctor's intervention, but, we found very quick results by um, in their diet by coupling together a heme iron and a non-heme iron source with vitamin C. And so we'll put in red meat with say spinach and peppers and so twice the vitamin C of an orange, but you could use orange juice or an orange. And then we avoid calcium in that meal. We keep the dairy out of that meal. Uh, so we design a four meal a day plan where one of, where the other meals, two of the other meals can have the dairy, maybe dairy and eggs we use for that protein source, use some yogurt or what have you, because we do need to get a thousand milligrams of calcium in. So it's kind of, it's bringing us back to the, the uh, micronutrient conversation where I think is where this whole thing led, uh, is that we pick foods that 
you know, are, are, have the highest amount of highly bioavailable, easy to absorb uh, micronutrients. And those are some of the biggies, uh, obviously iron for young women. Uh, and again, you can have iron overload for some men and, and we do just the opposite. You know, we might reduce some red meat intake, but we don't like to completely eliminate it because of all of its other nutrients. Uh, I think Dr. Chris Masterjohn, PhD in nutrition, uh, has uh, hemochromatosis, but he doesn't eliminate red meat. He uses blood donation to remedy that because he wants a lot of the nutrients that are in the red meat. Um, but we use calcium to try and bind to some of that iron in that specific meal. So we'll load them up with milk or yogurt when they do eat steak to try and um, inhibit some of the iron absorption while still getting a lot of the benefits of the other micronutrients, you know, the, the B vitamins and, uh, and a whole host of other things you can get from uh, zinc and um, creatine and carnitine and uh, selenium, all the things that, that we get from red meat. And it's not to say it's exclusively red meat diet. I just, I, there's just no reason to avoid it, particularly for uh, young women with anemia. Uh, so right. that's how we design the diet. We get really good results. It might take a month or more to get your red blood cell count back up or get your iron content back up, but you'll see an improvement in your energy within just a week or so. Uh, so it, it, you do get some pretty immediate benefits. Same with vitamin D. You can see it improve if you're you know, below say 25 uh, on your, your vitamin D25 hydroxy test, um, it might take you two, three months to get that up to 40 or 50, you know, with significant doses, uh, but you'll feel better within a week or two of, of starting to supplement. And so um, the blood tests kind of always generally will lag uh, what, how you feel. Right. On the, the diet thing, I, I put out a thing on Instagram before this as to what our listeners wanted to hear. And um, one young athlete asked, she wanted to hear about how diet affects hormone optimization. And is it high fat, low fat, you know, protein? How do you feel the optimal diet for optimal hormone production? What is it? And then, or is it just individual, she asked. Yeah, I'm cautious about using that term anymore, hormone optimization. It, it, yeah. It's not a scientific term. Uh, and people tend to think that there, you know, that there's some perfect diet and there's some perfect numbers. And as you know, uh, you can get a, a broad range of, of symptoms uh, within the entire normal range. Let's say for testosterone, for instance, I've worked with one of the strongest men on the planet, uh, Blaine Sumner, who, you know, squats over 1100 pounds, uh, who's been lifetime natural, uh, his blood test had a 400 testosterone. And that's not uncommon. Uh, when you look at guys in the Olympics, and some of that's from overtraining, I do understand yeah. that those guys as they near competition, they're going to have lower testosterone. But you can have, you know, very different responses within the normal range between 400 and 1100. Uh, yeah. that might not necessarily, that's why you have to ask, you know, do you have ED? Are you fatigued? And, and is it not attributable to some other cause? And, and you guys go through a very uh, elaborate uh, process of trying to fetter all that out to make sure that you're giving the, uh, or the guys at Merrick to make sure that they're giving the right advice. Um, so specific to her question, there isn't an optimal diet, but there, there is, you can have too little or too much. Of, of just about anything, you know, including water in terms of toxicity. Um, when you get fats down below, and this number is variable because, uh, you know, it might depend on total calories, but you get fats down below 20, certainly below 15% of total calories, you're going to start to feel an impact on hormones. Um, if you're, uh, if you don't have sufficient protein, obviously, which we, you know, I look at that as rather than a percentage, I kind of look at that as a number, maybe uh, at least one you know, 0.8 grams per pound, probably in terms of performance. And you could probably go down to uh, 
uh, 0.6 grams per pound if, uh, if the training stimulus is sufficient and you're in a calorie surplus. Um, those things are big. When I'm thinking hormones for women in particularly, you know, obviously we just discussed iron, so I'm trying to get that into the diet. But I'm also thinking iodine for the thyroid, which is one yeah. of the, the most, uh, again, the most prescribed uh, hormone for women in the United States is thyroid hormone. Very, uh, probably one of the top five prescribed medications of, of all uh, for, for women in particular is going to be is going to be thyroid medication. So I want them to get sufficient iodine uh, in their diet, especially for active you know athletes, because you sweat it out, and then uh, you know you we've started to use uh, for some reason somewhere along the way we started demonizing iodized table salt, which was probably yeah. one of the best, best things for our health implemented in the 1930s uh, due to, uh, you know, goiter. And, and uh, I think we saw that kind of in the goiter belt there in the mid northern US. Uh, and, and that was, we saw that how it affected IQ in the military. These were these were huge studies with tens of thousands of, of military uh, men in both World War One and World War Two, where we had blood tests. Um, and so that's, that's huge to get sufficient iodine in. And sometimes we'll switch to say pink salt thinking it's healthier. There's no indication that it is the, the idea that the, the tiny little bit of, uh, micronutrients that often gets lauded as, as, as being, you know, superior, they're not of a sufficient dose to provide you any, any benefit. It's just, yeah, literally called trace. Trace. That's why they call them trace. <laughs> yeah. When it comes to the the fat, the twenty percent, do you think which kind of fat? Which this, uh, you know, it's a crazy topic to bring up. You don't want to talk too much about poofas or mufas or saturated. But do you feel like there's a difference as far as hormone optimization? Are you in the camp of saturated fat is what drives the hormones, or does it matter? Well, it does seem that your body can manufacture the cholesterol that it needs. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. I've learned a lot. I've evolved a lot in this topic. I put out a video years ago, the poison that's killing us. And I talked about seed oils because, and I, but I mentioned in the video, I said, look, these are a poison to me. I'm allergic to them. They give me uh, gastric distress. I get, I get uh, really bad diarrhea from seed oils. Uh, and I said the same thing about um, uh, sugar alcohols for people who overconsume sugar alcohols. They give you Diarrhea. The same thing with, uh, remember that Olestra fat that we oh, yeah. tried to substitute <laughs> gives you diarrhea. Metformin yeah. can give you diarrhea. You know, yeah. there's lots of things that can give you diarrhea. And if you get that, you should avoid that food. But I was also cautious to stay in that seminar many years ago. And I still maintain that, uh, you know, it's different for different people. People have a peanut allergy should avoid peanuts, but the rest of the population should not. I say the same thing about salt. People who are hypertensive or salt sensitive should avoid uh, adding salt to their food, but those who aren't particularly active individuals uh, could benefit from, particularly those with orthostatic hypotension uh, or people who sweat a lot or salty sweaters, uh, they could benefit from adding sodium. So back to the fat conversation, um, uh, we do have really good evidence from multiple lines of, of uh, evidence, including Mendelian randomization trials and randomized control trials, that saturated fats in excess of 10% of total calories uh, can accelerate uh, or are causal of cardiovascular disease. And so I've worked hard to, uh, to try and get my clients to reduce things like butter and bacon, which we saw in the Finland study, uh, Dr. Pekka Puska that implemented, uh, you know, had an 80% reduction in cardiovascular disease over the course of, I think it was a few decades between 1970s and, and uh, by implementing, by reducing butter intake, which was the kind of their number one food. Um, 
uh, just lowering saturated fats. And so yeah. that's not to say you have to eliminate them altogether. We don't see much difference um, in LDL reduction if you're in that lower range. Uh, just like we don't see much difference in LDL increase if you're in the upper range, if you're between 18 yeah. and 25 percent, which I think led a lot of people to start to uh, claim that uh, saturated fat didn't increase uh, LDL or APOB. If, if, and I, our audience should know that that is ultimately the best predictor, APOB, yep. uh, something that not they everybody listen to us, they know it. Yeah. If they listen to you, they know it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but saturated fat's a big thing, obviously increasing fiber. If anybody asks me about lifestyle for, um, for lowering LDL or APOB, uh, it's just to reduce butter and bacon and to increase soluble fiber. And that can include taking some psyllium husk uh, and then of course exercise. But having said that, a lot of people don't respond to that. I mean, Dr. Lane Norton, you know, a natural athlete uh, who's a PhD in nutrition, uh, he wasn't able to get his LDLs under 130. Uh, he's got familial hypercholesterolemia. And so he started using, a, I think, a dual therapy. I'm not sure exactly, but I do know that, um, uh, that Dr. Dayspring recommends, and you guys recommend as well, uh, using a low-dosed satin, which, uh, of course, uh, results in a lot less um, uh, myalgia uh, mm-hmm. potential for muscle soreness uh, with azetamibe. Uh, which uh, is extremely effective. And so, uh, again, even a natural athlete like Lane Norton, who eats 60 grams of fiber a day and watches the saturated fat, uh, wasn't able to get his LDL under 100. So uh, I just hate for people to think that they're doing something wrong. Mm-hmm. I often see that happen. I think sometimes we create stress for people if, if, if we uh, lead them to believe that they've failed if they, don't, if they, if they have to utilize pharmacotherapy uh, you know, such as a statin, a low-dose statin, because there's been such a, um, in, in the media, well, I'm going to say in the media, but there's been so much. Uh, I Demonization. Think, yes, a lot of that. There are people, and you know, I used to think the same thing five years ago. I wouldn't, I wouldn't recommend statins. And that's, you know, because here's the thing. If you're a doctor prescribing statins, and I saw this when I attended the Barbell Medicine Seminar and talked to uh, Austin Baraki about this, uh, his feedback, his clinical feedback, this is studies aside, was that there wasn't a whole lot of, of myalgia, that it was small, 5% maybe. But now he's talking, and remember, 50% of people who go on medication uh, stop taking it. And so he's only getting feedback from those people who continue therapy. Now, I'm getting the feedback from the other group. The people who took it went off of it because it caused them problems and then reached out to me for other solutions. And so I'm seeing the 20 plus percent on my side. Uh, now, the research is somewhere in the middle, and, and they have, do have some placebo research to suggest that some of that is, is, a, is a placebo effect, but um, things have evolved. Uh, Lane Norton used to think that, even Alan Flanagan, uh, you know, as sharp as he is, uh, used to believe that, that, uh, that cholesterol didn't matter uh, just five years ago, um, uh, or that saturated fat didn't matter just five years ago. And so, and we should distinguish between the fact that I, I just used cholesterol and saturated fat in the same sentence and not the same thing. Right. And, uh, and your audience probably knows that, that uh, the cholesterol in your diet uh, for the vast majority of people doesn't lead to elevated um, LDL or ApoB. Correct. Uh, a small percentage, maybe up to 20% who, who maybe has kind of the numbers that Dayspring put on it, uh, may 
have, you know, probably those with familial hypercholesterolemia may have some, some adverse impact from eating eggs. The vast majority of people do not. Um, and so I, I want to stick with the saturated fat. I know this is a long, lengthy uh, answer, but it's, it's, no, I'm so happy enough. you're doing it. it it's compelling enough. And, and I, you know, I've got to be cautious about not, you know, disseminating the same information, misinformation that I got from reading Gary Taub's book or Nina Tycho's book. And, you know, I used to, I used to love their references and I used to dig into them. But uh, when you find out that it's, it's cherry picked stuff and it's not consistent with the body of evidence, uh, you know, I, I've got to raise my hand and say that some things that they recommend are, are great, but that isn't, um, that isn't one of them. And even Dr. Peter Atia over in recent years has started to turn away from uh, some of Gary Taub's original um, uh, information that, that I think Dr. Peter Tia bought into some five years ago. And the reason I mention all these names, I, I you know, I, I consider myself somebody uh, who's well-informed. I've tried to be, I've read, you know, damn near everything everybody's written and I follow all of these people and I, I watch all their, I, I subscribe to all their, uh, their newsletters and I watch all their podcasts obsessively. I think it's my job. Uh, but that doesn't mean that, uh, again, it doesn't mean that, that, uh, that I'm a guru, I'm some genius. I, I'm, I'm just trying to follow as best I can the, the science. And I'm seeing that people who are a lot smarter than me have made the same mistakes I made. And so I would ask our, our audience that's listening if, in fact, they had uh, information to the contrary of what we're discussing today, just to, just to step back and open up your mind and uh, start to look at at, uh, at both sides of the argument rather than trying to support, um, you know, your your own personal. Some people try and justify the fact that they've got high LDL. It's not it's not yeah, justifiable. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's just yeah. not. Oh, my triglycerides are low. Oh, my HDL is 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 good. Well, you know that might decrease your uh, your cardiovascular risk, but it doesn't eliminate the fact that ABOB and LDL are causal and you should keep those down at least under a hundred. And we're thinking maybe even under 70 or 60. Yeah, I aim to keep mine at 60 or below. Yeah. That's what we're seeing yeah. now. And you know, the neat thing about that is particularly if, if you, if, if you uh, do need and, and, and try uh, more so than lifestyle to, to use the, uh, the low dose statin with azetamide, you can easily get those numbers down there. Uh, oh, yeah. And it's a real relief. I found customers of mine who, who were averse to taking medication, uh, like you get some award for that. Uh, um, yeah. People, you know, and people, it's, it's kind of influencers' fault for making people feel guilty about using uh, uh, medicine to, you know, even for high blood pressure or anything like that. Yeah, we'd like to fix the root cause or whatever else, but in the meantime, you know, you you should not expose yourself to increased risk of, of cardiovascular disease or, or kidney failure from high blood pressure, uh, and utilize whatever resources are available, particularly in uh, in the competitive, you know, like in the performance enhancing drug using group. It's like, where are you to have an opinion about whether or not somebody uses, you know, blood pressure exactly. medication or, or azetamide uh, when yeah. you're pinning, like you said, Tran and, and, and mainlining, you know, and putting D-ball on your Cheerios in the morning. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> we're the last people in the world that should be, you know, trying to judge people based on, uh, you know, their, their, their health decision, particularly under the supervision of a medical professional. So, 
Uh, I don't know if that brings us back to the young lady's question. You might be afraid to ask me a second from the audience, but uh, those are my, my big three. And then I would throw potassium in there too. We talked about iodine. We talked about iron. Uh, I would throw potassium in there too. It's, it's so unbelievably beneficial, both for men and women, uh, just for energy. I just found it, it controls water balance in the body. Women who would get edema, particularly during pregnancy and their ankles and what have you, uh, constipation, you get, if they get sufficient potassium, I throw that number at about 4,700 milligrams a day. And I, I've got a chapter on that in the book. A daily potato, some fruit and some yogurt usually gets you there. Uh, yeah. But you, you have to be pretty deliberate about eating those things daily to get that 4,700 milligrams. You just find you feel better. Your, your water balance is better. Your digestion's better. Uh, there's a whole host of other benefits, but those are probably the, the big ones that I focus on. And then I do supplement 2,000 milligrams or 2,000 IUs of vitamin D daily for most people. Uh, I'll base that on their, their vitamin D25 hydroxy test and some magnesium. They're just both hard to get from food. Yeah. yeah. So those are the things I'd focus on. No, I'm super happy you went down the cholesterol tangent too, because I see a lot of uh, clients of Merit come in who follow your tenets or they think they do maybe. And like you said, they, you know, when people think they're following the vertical diet, they don't read the whole thing. And so I think they almost kind of lump you in with the carnivore crowd a lot and thinking that, you know, I'll see guys who are eating a ton of red meat, which is definitely one of your, your tenets, but the quality is what I tell them. I'm like, Hey, I've had dinner with Stan. I see the kind of meat that he orders, you know, it's extremely lean. It's not this like, you know, fatty marbled <laughs> steak, which they're doing thinking that they're following your stuff. You know, they're thinking that this is this high fat diet and then they have some cranberry juice and rice on the side. Yeah. And I'm like, I think you need to reevaluate what Stan's actually saying. Uh, because, you know, I, I know you use like the Piedmontese beef and you go for leaner, yeah. you talk about leaner cuts and quality. Yep, top sirloin, 96.4 beef from Trader Joe's, yep. uh, maybe bison. Uh, and again, the, the, at the end of the day, the macros I recommend are uh, not to exceed 30% of total calories and fats. Not because it's bad for you if you consume more and they're, and they're not saturated, but because obviously I want to leave enough room for at least 25 plus percent, maybe 30% protein, and then sufficient carbs to fuel training. Uh, and I want everybody to train. So it's, it's not as though uh, those carbs are, are, are superfluous. And, and then if that 30% fats in the diet consists of lean sources, such as top sirloin steak, only 30% of top sirloin's fat is saturated. So you're looking at 30% times 30%. That puts your uh, total saturated fat at under 9% of total calories, well within the recommendations of the American Heart Association. Yeah. And I've also provided some relief for folks that uh, we now see that dairy, uh, the type of fat in dairy is cardioprotective and it does not increase. That does not include butter because it, the butter, the churning process breaks down that uh, milk fat globulin membrane that is protective. Right. And so uh, dairy is certainly, if you can tolerate it, and again, that brings up the whole conversation of, uh, of uh, allergy versus tolerance and the dose um, but, uh, I like to get the thousand milligrams of calcium in. And so I do recommend, uh, you know, whether it's fat-free Greek yogurt or some people can tolerate milk what have you, but, uh, milk does not see, nor does cheese. We don't see like an aged cheddar cheese. We don't see, uh, we don't see the research suggests that that's going to raise your, uh, your cholesterol as well for the vast majority of people as mentioned with eggs. Uh, so those that, you know, it gives you a lot of choices. Sure. I think as long as you're staying lean and, and avoiding, uh, unfortunately, and I hate to use the word avoid, but minimizing 
uh, butter, bacon, uh, that would include coconut oil, uh, palm mm -hmm. oil, that would include those in any significant dose that might push your total uh, saturated fats over 10% of total calories. Yeah, no, I love hearing that from you too. And and I love the fact that you talked about LDL and ApoB being causal, because that's another big misconception. It's 100% causal. And we know that. And yeah. it's not only influencers. A lot of times we have clients come in who they say, my doctor told me, and the craziest thing is too, is they'll say, well, it's always been high. And I'm like, well, that's so much worse, you know, because <laughs> this is a disease of exposure. So the longer it's high, the more damage it's doing. So we need to get this under control. And it's like, you know, you wouldn't say just keep on smoking until you get lung cancer. And then we're going to think about doing something about it, which unfortunately with doctors, that's almost how we're trained. Let's wait until the risk gets bad enough to where you may have a heart attack before we ever include something, you know? Yeah. So it's really cool to hear you say that too. Yeah. Agreed. Yeah, it's crazy. And then you know, one other thing I wanted to touch on with you, because I know you're a big proponent, which you brought up multiple times here, the salts and the electrolytes. And I had a client today right before starting, and I, I told him I'll give him a shout out on here and bring up his case. He was uh, dealing with having severe cramps throughout the day. And I asked him, you know, what, what's your diet? What are you doing? He was drinking a ton of water, like uh, plus over a gallon, you know, yeah. and I'm like, are you salting that water? Are you doing any electrolytes? And he thought, thought to himself, oh, maybe I'm not, you know, and he's having bad cramps. He's doing jujitsu and he's weight training and his abs are cramping. He says he's cramping even while he's having conversations. So my opinion was that he was probably overdoing it on the water. Um, he was sweating a ton, overdoing it on the water. He's diluting his, uh, you know, his blood here significantly for the electrolytes. So maybe you could touch on a little bit of what you've seen with athletes and salt. And I know, like you said, it's been demonized a lot in some, and you're somebody who's been a big proponent of bringing it back. Yeah, and I have, I'm cautious to navigate this. When I first talked about this, I was talking to athletes. And then, you know, medical professionals started chiming in and stating that I was giving people unhealthy advice. It's a very different uh, thing working with an athlete, like you said, who's sweating a lot and, and out exercising, particularly larger athletes with more muscle mass uh, than it is dealing with a sedentary population. So the big divider here is is salt sensitivity um, or... Uh, uh, hypertension. If you uh, suffer from high blood pressure, not a good idea to, to consume salt. Uh, there are people, a small percentage, I don't know if it's five to 10% of people who uh, have reverse salt sensitivity, who when they cut their sodium too low, they actually get elevated blood pressure. So that does exist. So, uh, it could be, you, know, you might need a, a professional to help you kind of navigate that. So we'll, we'll, we'll go away from that and talk about athletes. Mm -hmm. Uh, and I work with a lot of athletes who I get salt tests for, uh, Dr. Sandra Godick, uh, PhD in thermoregulation and hydration from, uh, the heat Institute. She provides on her website, I think it's levelin.com, uh, L E V E L Y N I, I, I believe she provides, uh, patches. Uh, she does this for a lot of NFL teams, including the Philadelphia Eagles. I work with Lane Johnson. Uh, he sweats out five grams of salt an hour. Uh, they put that patch on for an hour and then you send the pet patch back and they analyze it to see uh, how much salt they're sweating out. And you can imagine five grams of sodium. I'm sorry, I, didn't, I said salt. I meant five grams of sodium an hour, which is like 12 grams of salt. Uh, that's not something you can replace uh, acutely during, it, your stomach wouldn't be able to tolerate that dose. And so you, you have to start utilizing salt or sodium throughout the day um, and by adding it back to meals. I also mentioned in my video on salt, 
that uh, people who go on diets uh, stop eating fast food, they stop eating packaged food. That's where the vast majority of your sodium is. And so it's okay when you're eating whole foods prepared at home to add back in some salt. Um, I was kind of mentioned by name in, in Alan Flanagan's uh, some two years ago, one of his podcasts, <laughs> uh, talking about my advice about salt and again, conflated uh, my advice with athletes to that of the general population. Um, and they said the very same thing. They said that if you're eating whole foods, you can add back in salt. Uh, and they talked about its impact on blood pressure. Uh, there's one other thing that could be of concern. You mentioned drinking a ton of water. Salt concentration matters. Uh, blood pressure is one concern, but also um, the effects of, of high salt concentration on uh, the endothelial layer of your blood vessels. And it could impact the, the uh, would you call it the pliability or the, mm -hmm. uh, the suppleness of your, your uh, blood vessels. Um, and we see that, that uh, you know, much more recently, I thought it was interesting that, that Alan had another guest on uh, from uh, Europe who was a, uh, a researcher, postdoc researcher in, in sodium intake, particularly for athletic individuals, said the very same thing. Larger athletes can use more uh, and salt concentration matters. And so you, if you are going to uh, add salt into your diet, you're going to want to make sure that you're getting sufficient hydration. And as you mentioned, if you're just taking in water, then you dilute uh, your electrolytes. You don't want to, and I guess the best measurement of that is you don't want to pee clear. Now that can be uh, impacted by taking multivitamins, which, uh, you know, might show a yellower urine, but not necessarily mean that your, your, your electrolytes are, are fine. But, uh, so it's not a perfect measurement, but that's, that's a good one. If you're being clear, um, we like to see people consume water at a slower rate. Maybe I think Andy Galpin talked about this recently with uh, Dr. Huber, Huberman. Um, your body will absorb and utilize the, the water and salt better if it's uh, you know, about six ounces every 15 to 20 minutes, as opposed to sitting there and guzzling a ton of water at once. Kind of has the opposite effect. It will stimulate the kidneys mm -hmm. to release water. And uh, so... I don't want to overcomplicate it. I really don't. Uh, I don't want people to think it's a it's a more is better scenario. I had a, even my own training partner when I told him about that I was taking uh, salt before workouts. I was just taking a, a salt tablet, uh, a sodium chloride tablet that I bought off of Amazon. Dirt cheap. I didn't even have to buy that. You know, God bless LMNT and the rest of those guys. You know, they provide a really good tasting product. And it's it, it's uh, and I tend to like them. Uh, but it's. It, it, you can take salt tablets if you're on a budget. <laughs> and uh, I was taking 500 milligrams of sodium before my training sessions. And I just, you know, I realized a lot more endurance and stamina. I, yep. uh, my workouts felt better. I had better pumps. And I had, you know, obviously hundreds and hundreds of people when I did that video all over the country were sending me DMs saying they experienced the same thing. But occasionally, like my workout partner, I would get the individual that if one is good, you know, two is better or four. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I, I said, look, that it's not a more is better scenario for lack of a better explanation. You're going to end up pissing it out your ass because you, yep. you'll, you'll give yourself diarrhea or even throw up uh, by yeah. taking in too much salt, uh, thinking it's, you know, a more is better scenario. So uh, I think that's all the nuance that, that is necessary for this conversation. But it, it is it, it can be of benefit. You're, you're way too nuanced and rational to be as, as famous as you are. I can't believe it. 
I hate that I don't have more hacks or gimmicks or tricks. You know what's funny? The things I get excited about aren't things I sell. Uh, and I've been in this industry over 30 years, and so I don't, you know, I don't jump up and down and get all excited about much. I think there's a lot of influencers out there with a huge followings that spend a lot of time talking about mechanisms of action and then take these yeah. giant logical leaps into outcomes that just aren't there. I've always been outcome oriented. I've, 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 I've kind of used Mark Bell's philosophy throughout my life, which is uh, weakness is never a strength. And as mentioned earlier, in terms of, uh, of the immediate feedback, if I go to the gym and, and I'm not performing, I can usually see somewhere in the previous 42 to 70, 48 to 72 hours, something that impacted that and yep. try and correct it. Uh, but the things I get excited about are things like uh, a CPAP for somebody with apnea. That to yeah. me is huge. That's life changing. Yeah. And I, I, I don't like to use that word very often, but that's life changing. Um, things like uh, the thermos. The, I don't make any money saying this. They're $20 on Amazon, but I toted around plastic Tupperwares with meals for 30 years, right? The six pack bags. And you had to try and find a microwave to heat them up. And if it was fish, it would just go nasty. You know, yeah. <laughs> it was terrible. And then somehow, somewhere along the way, I was like, you can put food in the thermos and it'll stay hot for 10 hours. You know, the same thing my <laughs> grandfather took to work uh, in, in the rail yard when he was a kid. Uh, and, and you know, they were, I think they were glass lined back then. They used to break all the time. You'd shake them and you'd hear, them, hear the glass in, in those old thermos. That did. But now we've got these little thermos, 24-ounce thermos. And so I'll make a couple of meals and I'll put them in there and I can travel with them. Hell, I took five thermos. Uh, with me on my trip to Moscow, which is like a 24-hour day. By the time you, you know, get to the airport, the layover, uh, you know, customs, get to your hotel. But I had five meals, five hot meals. I, I cooked them super, super, super hot. So they were just steaming. And I put them in the thermos real quick and put the lid on it. And I took all five of them in my carry-on uh, bag that I put under my seat. And every three or four hours, like clockwork, I was sitting there eating a hot monster mash with bison and rice oh, and awesome. spinach and, you know, bone broth. It was just delicious. Everybody around me smelling, you know, you could see the steam coming out of my food when I opened up the lid. Everybody around me eating, you know, foraging for peanuts and, and whatever yeah. other garbage they serve on the airplane. But I'm going to tell you. Is that what you, uh, is that what you brought onto the shark tank? Yeah. Oh, no, no. That was, that's for fluids. Yeah. I'm just talking oh, about okay. metal. The double oh, just the thermos, not even yours. Not even mine. Yeah. It's just, it's just that, uh, it's that metal one, you know, the, the, the little metal one with the lid on it. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Again, not even mine, but that's, that has certainly been life-changing for me. Just the ability to, uh, you know, I make meals even when I work from the home here, if I got to go pick my kids up at school and take them to practice or whatever else, I've got my thermos with me. I, I never, you know, if my flight's delayed or canceled, I don't care. I'm sitting in the airport eating hot food from my thermos. And when I travel, sometimes if it's for a week, uh, I've mentioned that I'll put 30 of my prep meals. And I don't care if it's my prep meals. I, I own a meal prep company, The Vertical Diet, and I provide Monster Mash to people all over the country right to their doorstep. But when I sit, talk about meal prep, whether you prep or I prep or you hire somebody else to prep, I don't care. Meal prep is one of the most effective ways to adhere to a diet plan. And so yeah. that's why I get excited about things like a thermos or things like taking 30 frozen meals in a rolling Coleman cooler and checking them on the plane. So when I land in Switzerland or wherever else I, I go and I'm there for a whole week, I've got all my food sitting there and I, I just stay at a place with a fridge and a microwave and it saves me time. It saves me money. It saves me digestion problems because every time I eat internationally, as many people can attest to, um, 
you end up sprinting to the bathroom at one time or another, <laughs> or, or worse, you know, you might end up getting, uh, you know, some sort of food poisoning, which I commonly see. So uh, I try and control those variables. That's why I used to fly to uh, the world's strongest man competitions in advance of Hofthor, Brian Shaw, and I would shop for all their groceries. You see my Costco trips where I was shopping for the world's strongest men and I would take all the food to their Airbnb and make sure that they had everything. And I would advise them to avoid eating out at restaurants during the week. I mean, here you are one week out from competition, five days out from competition. That's not a time to experiment with room service or airport yeah. food. It's, it's a bad idea. And those are some of the things that I focus on. Um, probably the last thing in terms of, uh, or just the most recent thing uh, in terms of life changing. Well, one other is the monster mash tool that you can okay. get it at Walmart or whatever. Uh, I used to use a fork. You can see old videos of me mashing my hamburger with a fork and it was, it was horrendous. You had to have some wrist strength to be able to do that. And I, <laughs> somebody DMs me this, a link to a monster mash tool on you on uh, Amazon and I bought it and oh my God, life changing. I'm just bam, 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 bam. And I've got my, my monster mash and my little monster mash tool. And another one was the, uh, see how I get all animated about these stupid little things. But, <laughs> It's amazing how helpful these things really are in terms of, of your day-to-day, -day, you know, uh, ease of, uh, uh, you know, uh, of complying with all this stuff is the, um, uh, the jarring funnel. I used to, to spoon my Monster Mash up and try and put it into the thermos and it would get all over the, the, mm. the threads and on the outside of the, the bottle. And then somebody told me about a jarring uh, funnel. And so you just put a little jarring funnel in there. Now I can fill them, you know, and I don't make a mess. And... So lastly, here's the one I discovered just a few months ago. I've always used, uh, or a lot of times I've used, um, um, what do you call those? Uh, 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 why am I forgetting? They're uh, the cookers. Uh, what are they called? A crock pot or? <laughs> no, this one's like a ninja. Uh, oh, the foodie? Yeah, the ninja foodie. Is that what it is? It's like an um, air fryer and a few other things. Air fryer. That's the word yeah. I was looking for. Mm -hmm. I used air fryer for the longest time. And you put a steak in an air fryer and it comes out gray. It's just the same color it's all the way good. through. Yeah. And yeah. it's terrible. And I used to eat top sirloin like three plus pounds a day when I was training with Flex on, off of a Foreman grill. Imagine how <laughs> tough that was. It was like yes. leather. My teeth started yes. to get loose. Honest to God, my teeth started to get loose from chewing pounds of top sirloin on a Foreman grill. So I got this air fryer and I was using that for a while and it comes out you know, reasonably soft, but it's just not very delicious. So recently I got the Ninja air fryer, the two big gray drawers, Costco has yeah. them, they're on Amazon. Oh my God, the, the steak now it's like crisping and popping and, and the outside gets a nice brown on it, but the inside's still pink. Uh, the texture's so much nicer. Plus it's hands off, I don't have to, I can put a, a burger in there, you know, my, my bison or 96 for beef and just set it for 12 or 15 minutes or whatever. And now I don't have to make it in the pan. I don't have to attend to it. So it yeah. becomes more efficient for me just to go and throw that in. Now I can get the kids breakfast ready and my potatoes, I'm my microwave and my potato and uh, my burgers cooking and everything's happening, you know, for me, almost like somebody else is cooking it for me. And, and it, so I can prepare food. Uh, recently I did a, a, a Biggs university seminar here at my house. Uh, and at my gym here in Las Vegas, and I invited, and there were 13 people that came and attended, um, and I had them all in my kitchen. I, sh I prepared breakfast for all of us in like 20 minutes. Uh, my food for the day, all of their food. I used prep meals for the, for those guys, but I showed them how I prepped all of my food. 
I had three microwaves going at once and uh, I cooked everybody breakfast. I had the milk or orange juice or yogurt and fruit and uh, baby carrots and then all the, the prep meals. And I fed everybody in like less than 20 minutes. And we talked about nutrition for the first hour. And then we spent the day uh, going over some other things, uh, a lot of the stuff we discussed and then went to the gym and worked out. But the point being is it, it, compliance is the science and all the stuff I just mentioned and why I get so animated about it uh, is because if you create some sort of program, whether it's a, an exercise program or a diet that you can't easily adhere to with a busy schedule consistently, it, it, you know, it's just, you're not going to be successful. And so I, I focus on compliance. It's not the information now for me as much as it is the execution. How, mm -hmm. how are you going to implement this now? And will you be able to do it within, uh, you know, the confines of your lifestyle, which will include, you know, work and family and all those other things. It has to be efficient and effective. Absolutely. You awesome. might've changed my life with the Ninja air fryer on that stand. I'm oh, going to have to oh, order no, no. one. One more, one more. Okay. Uh -oh. you, put, you, put, <laughs> you put a little piece of wax paper in the bottom of the air fryer. Okay. And you get the salmon from Costco. They're cutting it in slices now with the mm -hmm. skin on the back. And you put it face down, skin up, face down on, on the wax paper and just set it for whatever your preference is, 10 to 15 minutes, depending if you like it, you know, pink or in the middle, whatever. Oh, my God. The most incredible salmon you've ever had. And my wife's from Samoa. Okay. She's a salmon snob. And, <laughs> she, and she'll never eat anybody's salmon. She loves this salmon. I get it for her all the time and I make it. And, and it, it takes no skill, no talent, a little bit of salt on it but it's outrageous how incredible that tastes. All right. <laughs> awesome. I'm going to have to keep you updated when I try then. I do love how excited you get all about the, about all this too, but I, it's, love food. I mean, people think yeah. I'm so disciplined and I, you know, I never eat pizza or whatever else. I don't, I, I like the food that I make. I really enjoy yeah. it. I love the taste yeah. of my food. It, it shouldn't be uh, bland. It should be mm -hmm. something that's that, that you'll enjoy or you're not going to stick to it. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, we eat like um, an iteration of white rice and beef like every night. Last night was more Asian yeah. style. My wife yeah. cooked it with like, you know, some veggies with a little bit of teriyaki. And then we did guacamole on the side. So it was a little bit of fusion. Amazing. I would have that over, you know, pizza any day. Agreed. I, and know, then you just, it. like you say, you pick the you pick the fat content of your beef. You want a 96.4 mm -hmm. from Trader Joe's or 93.7 or a bison. And you can stay within the confines of, of you know, what we call a healthy dietary pattern. Exactly. Well, awesome, Stan. Like I said, way too nuanced and way too <laughs> rational to be where you are. I'm super happy to see it. And we love being, you know, partnered with you with Merrick. It's awesome. Uh, thanks so much for coming on. And I think it's going to be huge for our guests in a lot of ways to hear some of what you said. And um, where can they find you now? I mean, obviously, everybody knows Stan. Um, are you doing anything new? The Biggs University was new to me. Yeah, that's new. We're probably going to do another one in a few months. Uh, I'm traveling around a bit. I've got a few seminars lined up. Um, uh, everything's at Stan Efforting. My website's stanefforting.com. You can get links to my meal prep there. I, I do deliver meals nationwide, um, uh, theverticaldiet.com, uh, but you can get it all at stanefforting.com. And then my YouTube is Stan Efforting, and there's a lot of great content on there, and my Instagram's uh, at Stan Efforting. So you can find it all, all there. And I'm um, trying to think if there's anything huge coming up in the near future. I, just seminars and traveling around. Um, uh, been working with Henry Cejudo down in Arizona. He's getting ready for a fight May 6th, a, a nice. championship fight, and working with the uh, women's Olympic wrestling team down there as well, which oh, is cool. awesome, through um, um, uh, Sunkist, one of the largest 
high school wrestling organizations in the country. It's been run by, uh, for I think over almost three decades now. Uh, so yeah, awesome. a lot of fun stuff. I've been down there every other week. And of course the John Jones thing just uh, resulted in a big win for John. And that was fun spending that time working with him, uh, bulking up. I have to, I have to admit that, that John wanted to be 250, uh, hell or high water. <laughs> so, <laughs> we weren't, we weren't really chasing a six pack. It, it was calories, 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 because he, he right. really wanted to be 250, and, and he, he damn near met that goal. So, uh, but we came out with a W, so we're happy. And awesome. stand on with John. How I forget how long did it did you guys take to put on that weight? Because it, it was a pretty slow process, correct? Yeah, I mean, I was down there back and forth for over nine months. It was nearly two years before he fought from the time I started working with him. Uh, so I, he was he was he was at that weight for a long time. You're right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, congrats awesome. on that. He looked awesome. It was great to see him pull out a W and solidify himself as the greatest of all time. Yeah, it's exciting, and I got to tell you, we wear we wear it as a badge of honor and work with a great athlete. And I know I feel like I'm I'm bragging about them all the time when I drop all these names, but. Uh, the real excitement is all the stuff we talked about there at the end that the, the, the everyday folks, you know, I, I tell people about that ninja every time I get a, con, uh, a phone consult or something and they're just, they'll hit me back with a text. Oh my God, this is so good. It, <laughs> those are the kind of things that are really exciting is, is, uh, is your gen pop and, and That's how, awesome. uh, little, little, little strategies that help them uh, enjoy this process a whole lot better, like the 10 minute walk. And I know we didn't touch on that today, but oh, uh, just, important. just how easy it is to, to do things like take a 10 minute walk a few times a day, as opposed to getting dressed, getting in the car, going to the gym and slogging away on a treadmill, which nobody enjoys. And it's not terribly yep. effective or sustainable. I use that with pretty much every client I ever talked to, every patient I ever talked to, you know, do no, hardly anybody can adhere to a 40 minute cardio session. No. Most people can yep. adhere to four 10 minute walks. You yep. know, that's Anywhere. awesome. And yeah, so you've changed Dude. a lot of lives, both, uh, you know, both professional athletes and, and normal everyday folk. And that's pretty awesome. You definitely made a huge dent in the world and it's an honor to be on here with you. Awesome. Thanks, you guys. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you, Stan.